Tonight's lecture on Confucius will run for 45 minutes and will be followed by a 30-minute question and answer session. I have a handheld mic which I'll be handing around for questions, so please just indicate if you have a question and it will be passed to you. Please do use the microphone for your questions as the lecture is being recorded for podcast on the university website and tonight is also being filmed by Slow TV. Tonight's key thinker lecture is unfortunately the last in the series and I want to say thank you to all of those of you in the audience who've managed to get to a few of the series. It's been a great success and um, we will definitely be looking at repeating it in 2010. Uh, the, we do have one more Sydney Ideas event for 2009, which may be of interest, and you have a brochure on your seats. It's a co-presentation with Intelligence Squared Australia. Uh, it's a debate on the motion, too many people go to university. All the information's in the flyer, but let me know if you've got any questions about it after the lecture. For tonight, I'd now like to introduce our speaker, Professor Geoffrey Regal, who is Head of the School of Languages and Culture in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Sydney, for his lecture on Confucius. Thank you. I'd, I'd like to begin by, by thanking Meredith and indeed everyone associated with Sydney Ideas for inviting me to give this talk. I, I think it's really for me, quite a privilege to, to get to participate in such a, uh, such a distinguished series. I've heard several of the talks my, myself, and, I, and uh, not only do I feel privileged, but I, I also feel some trepidation following some of the presentations that, um, uh, that I've heard. My, my subject um, this evening is um, Kongzi, or Master Kong. Confucius, what you, what you see written there. In, in my own research and thinking on, on Confucius, I often try to place him in a comparative context. That was the original plan, in fact, of, of my, my talk this evening, when I thought to compare Confucius's life and times with those of the first emperor. On reflection, however, I thought that perhaps too ambitious in the time we have uh, slotted this evening. Thus, uh, in my talk, I'll focus on, on Confucius. I'd, I'd note, however, that there will be a major exhibit of artifacts from the First Emperor's burial at the Art Gallery of New South Wales at the end of 2010. Uh, and I'm involved, to a small extent, in that initiative and, and so hope to... Uh, hope that will give me an opportunity on another occasion to speak about uh, the first emperor. Even um, to the great Han Dynasty historian uh, Sima Qian, uh, even, even for him, he thought it necessary when he read the documents associated with Confucius to try to, as, as he put it, uh, to imagine Confucius. And my purpose this evening is to show you how Sima Qian and others, including myself, have gone about imagining Confucius. The sources that shed light on Confucius's life and thought are numerous and varied. Um, many, many of these sources many of the most important ones, 
were compiled by the Han historian Sima Qian. Revisionist historians discard many of these sources. Recent scholarship in China, however, is more tolerant of questionable evidence when it comes to Confucius. So am I, for that matter, at least with regard to an effort to get a better grasp or fuller sense of what sort of philosopher Confucius was. As an example of the nature of materials that some have declared apocryphal, there's the very popular ancient tale of someone expert in the art of physiognomy, reading fate or character from the from bone structure, who declared that while Confucius had the face of a sage, the rest of him was so listless, aimless, lacking in spirit, that he resembled nothing as much as a sangjiago, a stray dog. This was a portrayal that Confucius readily accepted, according to the story. It's so, it's so, he declared explaining, of course, that physical appearance didn't matter a whit. There are, of course, more appealing portrayals of Kongzi, Confucius, more appealing in both literary uh, and, and visual sources. Examples of the latter are the woodblocks and rubbings that are supposed to be ultimately based on a portrait, or perhaps portraits of the master, traditionally attributed to the great Tang Dynasty painter Wu Daozi. These portraits, or one of them at least, was engraved in stone in the year 1118. And that in turn inspired woodblocks, such as this one, done by Chen Fangyo at the beginning of the uh, uh, Qing Dynasty in 1691. In fact, we don't know when the original portrait on which it was on which these woodblocks and the carvings, etc., when, uh, when that portrait was done, or in fact, whether it was done by, by Wu Daozi. Interesting, however, is the fact that in, in, in all of the renderings based on it, Confucius wears a sword. You can see it protruding here, and here's the, the handle of the, uh, of the sword. His hands are folded across his chest, and you'll note, that he bows slightly in the ancient manner. These are the basic elements of Confucian iconography, almost as unalterable as those that inform Buddhist art. Also famous are the numerous imaginative portrayals of Confucius and his disciples, such as this vertical scroll on silk with the signature of the Song Dynasty artist Li Tang, but more likely a copy executed during the Ming Dynasty, that is, sometime between the 14th and early 17th century. And then, of course, there's the enormous statue of Master Kong dropped into the courtyard of the old teacher's college to mark the opening of the Confucius Institute at the University of Sydney. Now, in, in point of fact, Confucius is supposed to have been rather massive, in size, someone of large physical stature. According to Sima Qian, he was nine feet six inches tall in ancient measure. This would make him approximately 2.2 meters, 
roughly the height of Yaomi. But Confucius came from the ancient state of Lu in the southwest corner of the Shandong Peninsula, an area, in fact, famous for tall people in antiquity, the ancestors of the generally very tall population of China's northeast. And in some ancient accounts, Confucius's father was even taller. According to tradition, Confucius descended from the nobility of the ancient state of Song, located here. Uh, These accounts maintain that his family name is derived from the polite name, that is, the family name Kong, is, uh, is derived from the polite name of the lineage's patriarch, a man who was murdered by his ruler, and that murder, in fact, initiated a decline in the family's fortune, so much so that eventually the family moved to neighboring Lu. And this is where, uh, in, in the southwest corner of the, of the great Shandong Peninsula, and this is, this is where um, uh, Confucius was born. Again, according to some traditions preserved in Sima Qian's history, Confucius was born as a result of a liaison between his father and a woman of the Yen family. That Sima Qian, a, a union that Sima Qian describes as, quote-unquote, a wild union or a union in the wilds. I'm uncertain of what that means. But it has, an, it has inspired some wild imaginings by scholars in the past. At the height of the criticized Lin Biao, criticized Confucius campaign, initiated by Mao Zedong in 1974, some said that Confucius's father, characterized as a heartless landlord, had raped an innocent girl, and Confucius was the result. It's doubtful that in referring to the wild union that produced Confucius, Sima Qian intended to say that Kongzi was illegitimate or in any other fashion to sully the reputation of someone he worshipped as a sage. Sima Qian acknowledges that Confucius, however, was born to a 70-year-old father and a 20-year-old mother. According to traditional notions, that's actually quite good. Uh, because it means, if you have such parentage, that you have an excess of yang and only minimal yin. Even now, people say that a boy produced by such, uh, uh, by such parents will be exceptionally tsongmi, especially exceptionally smart. On the other hand, Confucius's father died when he was three, and his mother died before, he, before the boy was grown. Confucius thus grew up in poverty, living with his maternal grandmother in the poorer quarters of the town of Chufu. The wild union to which Sima Qian referred, for him it may have been meant nothing more than the harbinger of an unhappy life. In another version of, uh, of the story about Confucius's father and the girl of the Yen family, Sima Qian says that the girl prayed for a child at a place called Nichio, or Ni Hill, or Ni Mountain, which is to the southeast of Chufu in Shandong. And it's for that reason that Confucius is named for the mountain, 
suggesting, in fact, that the mountain was a divinity responsible for Confucius's, uh, Confucius's birth. In this, in this reading, we understand the family name quite, quite differently. Kong, that, that syllable, is in fact in antiquity a syllable uttered in, in thanksgiving when prayers have been answered by the gods. He's named, he's named for Nietzsche. His given name was Qiao, Kong Qiao was his name. And his polite name was Zhongni, second-born Ni. The polite name confirms the tradition that Confucius was the second male child in his family. This was grist for the mill in post-1949 China, when he was sometimes reviled as the second-born Mr. Kong. On other occasions, he would be referred to as Kong Chiu after 49, which is especially improper, using his, using his given name, since given names are generally... Uh, are, are generally taboo. So taboo, in fact, that during the, during the Qing dynasty, when, when books were printed and the, and the word Qiu occurred in, in the text, whether or not associated with, uh, with Confucius, for example, this, this stroke in printed versions would just simply be eliminated so that, so that there wouldn't be the, the danger of having, of, of, uh, having offended against um, uh, offended against this taboo, and so you can see then what, how, really how insulting it would be uh, to refer to to Confucius as as uh, as uh, Kung Chiu. But the most impolite references to Confucius came during the uh, came during the Cultural uh, uh, Revolution, when he was called by by the name of Kung Kung Laoar. Old number two Confucius. This is especially insulting in, Be- in, in Beijing. Waiters in the most low-class Beijing restaurants, restaurants that serve bian cai, are called uh, laoar, or laoar ge. So they're just, they're, what, to, to call Confucius kung laoar is to say that boy, Confucius. Boy in the sense that you might call a waiter a boy and... and and, and summon him to the table. As, as mentioned, Confucius grew up poor in the most destitute quarters of the old city of Chufu. Excavations in the late 1970s located the old temples devoted to his memory in those very quarters, the remains of them, where it had probably been imagined the home of his maternal grandmother uh, was located. We have photographs the photograph on the left is of the great Dacheng Temple, the great completion temple taken by Edouard Chavan, who led a French, a French expedition in 1907. Chavan was quite inspired by, by, by Confucius's story, having translated the, the, the many passages in, the, in Sima Qian's history that relate to, to, to Confucius. And so he went to the site and, and, uh, and, and photographed what what the temple looked like in, 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 uh, again at the beginning of the 20th century. After Confucius died, he was buried on the banks of the Su River to the north of the city of Chufu. This later became the Kong family cemetery, the Konglin, and Siobhan also visited this site and, and photographed Confucius's tomb. That's the tomb mound in the, in the background, and this is the 
this is the tablet that gives a, a very elaborate name used, used at the beginning of the Qing dynasty, beginning of the, uh, uh, in, in, the 17th, in the 17th century for, for Confucius. I'll, I'll come back to the, to the forms of his, of his name um, uh, later on. Um, there's no question but that Confucius was a bit of an odd duck as a child. He's, he's said to have played with ritual vessels reenacting ancient ceremonies as a child. When his parents died, he alone accompanied their, their bodies to the tomb, prepared for them at, at uh, Fangshan. He was, we're told again in tradition, uh, uh, people felt sorry for him, members of the nobility, and invited him to their homes, but whenever he went to their homes, he continued to wear his mourning garments, something that was, con- if you're going to something like a banquet, you don't wear mourning clothes. It's not, it's not propitious, but this is, what, this is what he did. And again, in the apocryphal stories, he's severely criticized for having done it. No matter, he'd shown he was a filial son. Our most important source for understanding Confucius's life and thought is the Lunyu, or Analects, a 12,000 Chinese character-long collection of sayings and teachings, most of which are attributed to Confucius. The Analects is first and foremost a book of ancient quotations said by famous people, often about other famous people. But contained in these quotations are important, if elliptical and deceptively simple, lessons for living life. The Analects was compiled by Confucius's followers after, perhaps long after, his death. We can divide Confucius's life into six periods because he himself does so in, in, in the Lunyu or Analects. During his first 30 years, in the middle of which, as he says at age 15, Confucius declares, he set his mind on studying. He had become an orphan. He married at 19. He had a son at 20. He no doubt attended a village school, but where his higher learning came from, we cannot say. He once said, when I'm in the company of three others, certainly one among them I'll take as a teacher. But only one teacher is named in the Analects, his music teacher, a man named Xiang. The young Confucius was industrious, working in such jobs as that of a watchman at a, in, in a warehouse. But by 30, he seems to have developed a reputation, even beyond the borders of the state of Lu. He himself allows, by 30, I was established. It must have been around that time that he received his first pupils. In his early 30s, according to tradition in the year 518 BCE, Confucius left Lu and went to the royal Zhou court at Luoyang to pay a courtesy call on the Taoist sage Laozi. Some have expressed doubt over the historicity of this meeting, but it is famously portrayed in a Han Dynasty stone carving in a site in, in Shandong, a very famous family offering site called the Wuliang, Wuliang Shrine, and here you 
It's, it's, uh, it's a stone that was damaged. It, was, it had fallen off of the shrine at some point and was only rediscovered at the end of the, uh, end of the 18th century. But this is, this is uh, Confucius bowing uh, toward Lao Tzu, and these, these other figures are Confucius's followers, his carriage, Lao Tzu's, Lao Tzu's carriage. It's a very, uh, a very formal portrayal of the meeting. Uh, but it was quite, quite a popular theme, especially in the Han. Here's a, a, a stone, a fragment of an engraved stone slab, again showing Confucius here meeting, um, uh, meeting Lao Tzu. This is, a, this is a piece which is now kept in the, provincial, the Shandong Provincial Museum in, um, um, uh, in, in, in Jinan. You may, you may note, you can barely see it, that he has, he's carrying a, a, a bird in his hand here. And there's some discussion about whether this was intended as a gift for, um, a gift for Lao Tzu, or maybe it was, as some texts suggest, um, totemistic in some way, some, uh, something that was meant to indicate Confucius's, uh, Confucius's uh, status. We can't, we can't really be, uh, be, be certain. Between them, the small figure is a, a disciple who's only mentioned once in the, um, uh, in the literature, whose presence uh, is, I, in, in part at least, meant to suggest Confucius's great height, and Lao Tzu's great height, for that matter. After his purported meeting with Lao Tzu, Confucius went to the court of Lu's large na- neighbor, the state of Qi, this was one of his first attempts to win patronage from, 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 uh, from the rulers of other, of other states. He was, looking, he was looking for work, but he was, in this instance, as he almost always was, unsuccessful, perhaps because he'd been slandered and his prospects thus undermined. This is a trope in the literature, that when Confucius visited a court, someone in advance said, watch out for that guy. Uh, his ideas are dangerous. He'll be looking for a job. Don't give him one. And, and so this, was, this is a pattern that's, that's repeated. So between the ages of 30 and 50, Confucius withdrew into his native Lu and intensely studied poetry, history, ritual, and music while also teaching others. He says that by the time he was 40, he suffered no doubts a modest way of claiming that he'd done something worthwhile. He had taught others. He had taken students. In Chinese culture, if by 40 or at the oldest 50, you've accomplished nothing worthy of the admiration of others, then you've got some problems. Your life is, your life is problematic. Confucius himself says as much in the Analects. It's possible that this portrait of Confucius and, and his uh, two disciples, two of his favorite disciples, Yan Hui and Zhang Shan, is meant to represent him in this, uh, in, in this period when he, uh, when he uh, the, uh, the period of, of uh, in, in terms of gathering students about him, his period of, of, of greatest accomplishment. The painting was done during the Ming. It's especially noteworthy, although it's, uh, it's, Hard for you to see it, and I don't have a detail, but it's especially noteworthy because inscribed in minuscule characters 
on the robes of the three figures is the entire 12,000-character text of Confucius's Analects. The written word is enormously powerful in the Chinese tradition. To have the text inscribed, as it were, on the bodies of these individuals invests them and the painting itself with talismanic powers. At 50, in the year 512 BCE, he was invited by those who had power in Lu to take office. He didn't immediately respond. He confides to his followers that it, it was at 50 that he understood what heaven intended for him. He'd also in that year been reading the famous divination texts, the Zhou or Book of Changes. It was perhaps from that source that he learned his fate. What was it? It appears to us that at least in the short term, it was finally to have found some official employment. He held office for four years between the ages of 51 and 54, including the position of Minister of Crime in his native state of Lu. A Ming Dynasty artist produced a portrait of Confucius in that role. But in 501, his patron had to flee Lu for, neighboring, for neighboring, the neighboring states of Qi and Jin. Confucius continued, however, to be favored by his former patron's successors, and so continued to hold office. But typically, he got caught in the crossfire of competing interests, during, during which time he made the mistake, as he often did, of favoring the cause of the legitimate ruler of Lu rather than that of the families who actually wield, wielded power in the state. This led to a grim 12-year exile, starting in 497 BCE, when Confucius was forced, along with a band of his most loyal followers, to travel from one small state to another, looking for a patron or a handout. When he turned 60 in 492, he was fleeing to Chun, having braved serious dangers on the road. He says of his 60th year, that it was when my ears became trained. What does that mean? It's difficult to say. Perhaps he meant that he finally understood clearly the words of others. According to tradition, it was at this period that Confucius encountered a number of hermits who said extremely unkind things about him. Perhaps he took their criticisms to heart. A Tang Dynasty mirror shows him encountering the hermit Rongqiqi, whose name is identified in the, in the, uh, uh, on, on the mirror. Confucius is seen on the left with a, drag, a dragon-headed staff in his right hand and his left arm extended in a gesture that signifies asking a question. He didn't get any useful answers, evidently. His exile continued until he was 68. During the time, he visited six different states, but except for some temporary work in Wei and Chun, others were unwilling to employ him. He was, literally, as the fellows skilled in physiognomy had proclaimed, a stray dog. Confucius spent the end of his life, from the ages 68 to 73, sway, back in Lu. Though he had visited many ancient states, if it were plotted on a modern map, 
we would see that his itinerary took him no further than the modern provinces of Shandong and Henan. This is roughly the area of, of, um, uh, of, of, of Confucius's experience. He didn't know, he didn't know the north. He had never been anywhere near what is now Shandong, not to mention anything as far south as, as the area of Shanghai. He was his, his geographically, uh, his life was more or less a life confined within the floodplain, the eastern floodplain of the Yellow River. He said of himself at age 70, I indulge my heart's desires without transgressing boundaries. What he evidently meant by this is that in this last stage of his life, he had finally come to grasp the meaning of the seemingly paradoxical lesson that it's through the experience of one's own desires that the expectations of society are disclosed. But it was nevertheless a period of anxiety and disappointment. His son, Lee, had died before him in the year 483. He'd been working, we're told, on the official annals of the state of Lu, that is, Confucius had been working on them. But when the ruler of Lu caught a unicorn in 481, he abruptly stopped work on the annals. Catching a unicorn was sure to incite some form of divine retribution, and Confucius wanted no association with the ruler. And as it turned out, one of his favorite disciples died that year in 481. Then another of his favorite disciples died in the following year in 480, and he himself died in 479. These are the bare outlines of his life provided by the sources. And I confess that I'm making liberal use of sources that some would say are rather apocryphal in addition to, the, in addition to texts like the Lunyu. But who, we may ask, was Confucius, and why is he remembered? For me, the real Confucius, the living Confucius, is someone who articulated ideas of distinctive and lasting value for civilization, but someone who, in part because he was judged as impractical, out of step with the times, perhaps even dangerous, never had the opportunity to put uh, his ideas into practice as had the ancient sages that he himself worshipped. He favored tradition in an age that demanded change and innovation. He advocated education and cultivation as means to improve people's behavior to rulers who preferred a strict system of punishment and reward to accomplish that purpose. In a period of unbridled autocrats, he counseled tolerance of others and compassion for the weak and vulnerable. And finally, his teaching methods were based on voluntarism, when most students preferred to have everything spelled out for them without any bothersome episodes of self-revelation during which they might have to confront their own inadequacies. These unacceptable ideas are the underpinning of some of the most famous passages in the Analects. Those of you who have read it, uh, read the text, will probably have picked others. These are, these are three that, uh, that came to mind as I, as I mulled over what I might talk about. 
The master said, lead them with chastisements. Keep order among them with punishments, and the people will flee from you and lose their sense of shame. Lead them with virtue. Keep order among them with ritual, and the people will maintain their sense of shame and moreover come to you. For Confucius, the essence of of effective governance lay in the person and comportment of a leader, not in that leader's access to tools of social control. Social improvement is brought about by the improvement of the character of the population, not by controlling the behavior of that population. The master said, only for one deeply frustrated over what he does not know will I provide a start. Only for one struggling to form his thoughts into words will I provide a beginning. But if I hold up one corner and he cannot respond with the other three, I won't repeat myself. This passage is an encapsulation of Confucius's philosophy of teaching and learning. Noteworthy is the assumption that a teacher will pay, pay close attention to a pupil's state of mind, but will also balance that concern with a strict set of expectations. One could easily write long articles, long articles have been written, on, uh, on, these, uh, on these passages. One, you know, the, the language of the Analects is, is quite difficult, and not only, I, I should have mentioned that, not only does one have the, the, the nuances of, of, of meaning, of, of individual words to, to deal with, but there are great controversies of interpretation. As we, as we move through the ages, and these are these are preserved as long as 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 lengthy as the text of the Analects is, the commentaries on the text are ten times longer, easily. You could you you could get that from the the illustration of the book that I, I showed you. The large characters were the text. The small characters are the commentary, and they by far take up the the greater portion of the printed, um, uh, of the printed page. So there's there there is. Great, uh, a, a great deal of discussion that's, that surrounds these, these passages. In my own most recent work on Confucius's thought and the Analects, I've been focusing on early concepts of desire. At one point, the master said, I've never yet seen one whose lust for virtue equaled his lust for sex. Confucius's point, in my reading of the text, is to lament the absence of a passion for virtue. But that doesn't mean that he thinks it necessary to avoid, decrease, or eliminate the other passions that fill our lives. His philosophy of desire appears to be based on how one can learn moral lessons through natural emotional experiences. This philosophy is elaborated upon by one of his most famous disciples, a man we know as Zixia, or Master Xia, who defined as learned an individual who, quote, in treating the worthy as, as worthy, replaces those he finds sexually alluring with them. Master Xia's point appears to be that it's through the experience of sexual desire that we learn the intensity of feeling appropriate to treating as they should be treated the good and responsible members of society. We don't have to choose one object of desire to the absolute exclusion 
of another. Because Confucius never achieved a position of significant power or influence that might have allowed him to put into practice his philosophy, he never thought of himself as a sage. In Chinese, that's the word sheng. That was a privileged title, sheng, that he and others reserved for the great culture heroes, people like Shun and Yu, the controller of the flood, who lived during a golden age that was already for Confucius remote antiquity. This imperfect Confucius, that is the Confucius who was not a sage, is not the one preferred by the imperial tradition that elevated and transformed him into an icon of imperial rule. This transformation began with Confucius's own followers. One of his disciples, Master Gong, says of Confucius, quote, heavenly assuredly intended that he would become a sage. And the most famous followers of Confucius's teachings in the 4th and 3rd centuries BCE, Mengzi and Shunzi, both of them carried on this tradition by liberally labeling in their own writings Kongzi. They li- liberally labeled Kongzi, or Confucius, a sage. Shunzi accomplishes this literally by redefining the category of sage to have it fit Confucius's circumstances. He says, Shun and Yu were sages who wielded power. Confucius was a sage who didn't. For most people outside the philosophical lineage Confucius established, he wasn't a sage, but an ordinary mortal. Famous, admittedly, but mortal. I don't have time this evening, and this really isn't the place, to review the institutional and intellectual history that magnified Confucius and transformed him into a transcendent, semi-divine being. We can, however, gain some sense of this from the grandiose titles that over time were added to his name by subsequent imperial dynasties. During the Han Dynasty, he was awarded the posthumous title Baocheng Xuanigong, Eminent Sir Ni, Lord of Baocheng. At the end of the first century BCE, one of his one of his descendants was given the feudal title Lord of Baocheng, and the emperor who did that then retroactively <laughs> gave it all gave it to gave the gave the feudal title to uh, uh, to Confucius, calling him Gong. Duke or Sir, a lofty lofty title. In the Northern Wei Dynasty, sometime uh, during the second half of the 5th and first half of the 6th century of this era, he was titled Wansheng Nifu, cultured sage, Father Ni. In the Sui Dynasty, right before the rise of the Tang, that is uh, between 589 and 618, he was called Xianshu Nifu, first teacher, Father Ni. This is the first time that he's referred to as the first teacher. Before that time, that, that, he, he wasn't recognized as such. During the reign of the great Tang Emperor Shanzong, 712 to 756, he was given a completely new title, Wan Shanwang. He becomes a king in, in, uh, uh, in the Tang, cult, the cultured eminent king. In the ninth year of the Jiajing reign of the Ming dynasty, that is in the year 1530, the title Wang was removed from him, from his name. 
And he was merely called Zhisheng Shenshi Kongzi, the supreme sage and first teacher, Master Kung. Finally, during the reign of the Shunzhi Emperor of the Qing, the, the first emperor from 1644 to 1661, Confucius was called for the first time by the elaborate Da Cheng Zhisheng Wanxuan Xian Shi Kongzi. This is the title that's found on the on the uh, uh, the tablet in front of his uh, in front of his grave mound. It was only used for a short time at the beginning of the Qing, and afterwards the dynasty re- reverted to the simpler title that had been that had been employed in Ming times. But these titles do provide insight and background into how low Confucius's reputation had sunk. In, in the post-49 period, especially during the Cultural Revolution, when the epithets I mentioned earlier were in circulation. Now in China, in the restoration of what had decayed and in the rebuilding of what was destroyed in earlier decades, Confucius's traditional accolades have been restored to him. I don't have images to illustrate this point, Though a visit to the Confucius Temple in Beijing or the Confucius Temple, the Wan Miao in Suzhou, would provide ample proof. In Suzhou, for example, parents bow before images of the master and his disciples and pray for the success of their children in the college entrance examinations. Chufu, Confucius's hometown in Shandong, flourishes today as a major tourist destination. Li Ling, professor of Chinese at Peking University, in his book on the Analects, which he entitles Sangjago, Stray Dog, quotes Lionel Jensen, whom I knew as a student back at Berkeley, that both traditional Confucians, as well as those who revere Confucius in the present day, are manufacturing Confucianism. That is, creating a persona and a philosophy that fit their own times and needs. Li Ling himself says that from the Han Dynasty onwards, that is from starting as early as the second and first centuries BCE, but especially from Sung Dynasty times, from the 10th century on, the Confucius that everyone paid homage to was a manufactured Confucius. To quote Li Ling, the, rep- the representation of Confucius today is so artificial, it could not possibly be made any more so. I'm not so sure of that. Thank you.